I'm Ryan Jeffrey, and this is the Passionate About OSS podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to shine a light on some of the brilliant minds in the OSS and telco industry, about their background, knowledge, and also to uncover some tips and techniques they've developed along the way and share with you, uh, the audience. But today's guest is a CEO and founder of an OSS and BSS vendor. He's a strong promoter of open source and cloud native movements with involvement with LFN and some of the other standard bodies as well. He's got a strong hands-on involvement with the code still. So even though acting as a CEO and founder, he also gets time to to get really hands-on with the code. He and his company specializes in OCS, which is online charging systems, and particularly for uh, the MVNOs. He's highly knowledgeable about mobile technology with a long history in it, including 5G. He's helping to flesh out some of the standards with 3GPP, uh, the mobile standards body, TM Forum, also more recently with LFN. So welcome to today's guest, Vance Shipley. Hi, Brian. Thank you for having me. So you've been running SigScale for a little over five years, but your involvement in telco goes back way further than that, goes back somewhere like three decades. And knowing a little bit about your story, there are many twists and turns and achievements that in their own right would take a few hours for us to to dive into in your early career. So what we'll probably do is just touch on a few of the key points. I believe you started telco as a a high-tech lumberjack. Tell us what that term is and how that came about. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, well, that's really the the, the genesis of uh, of my 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 career, which has uh, really been focused on uh, on the telco space and 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 never left, or at least the communication service provider space. And so the the genesis was, I uh, I dropped out of high school and I really wanted to grow up quickly and and felt felt I needed to uh, to have a job and make some money to gain some independence and and uh, so rightly or wrongly that was a decision I took and and I had a guidance counselor who tried to to try to help me with that path my uh, my ambitions about what sort of work I would get were very modest but but he asked well what would you really like to do what job would you you know if you could have any job what job would you want to do and I for whatever reason said. Uh, I wanted to be a telephone man, and and I, I guess my reasoning was probably that uh, the guy uh, climbing the poles in the backyard and hanging wires and making phone calls from the top of a pole was was uh, was was impressive. Uh, some sort of a high tech lumberjack, and uh, it, it appealed to me. Probably not chopping any of the poles down like a lumberjack would do. Well, I, I did have a couple come down, uh, you know, when you're, <laughs> so I went into uh, cable television. He couldn't get me into uh, to uh, Bell Canada at the time, but he, he managed to get me into Rogers Cable, which was a bit of a surprise. And uh, there was a sort of a government program that uh, that provided some level of sponsorship. And I guess that was really the uh, the advantage that got me in. But um, I started climbing poles within, within a, a few months of that uh, as one of the things that I would do. And uh, we would rewire apartment buildings. So uh, we'd rip out all the old wiring and put in new wiring in, in like a day um, uh, for pay television because I needed direct uh, runs for that. And uh, so we used to, going back to the lumberjack, we used to, to have to cut the old drops, uh, the wires mm. that ran from the span to the building. And uh, uh, sometimes those poles were not as solid as they looked. And uh, <laughs> on one occasion, I... 
I, I cut one of those draw uh, one of those um, drop wires, and the the entire pole came down and was just hanging by the by the span. It was a it was an interesting day for me. Absolutely. So it was a bit of a load bearing catenary wire. Yeah, yes. it's actually holding the pole in place. Yeah, yeah, and that ended up being what it was. Yeah. Yeah, so you spent a couple of years in Cable Co, and then you made the transition into looking after PABXs before having your first real NMS experience and getting closer to what uh, what we look at in the OSS world. Yeah, so that was uh, my third job. Um, uh, when in, I moved from from cable to TV to interconnect business, which mm. was a new business, deregulation was taking place, and so you could buy your own phone systems for a business where you didn't have that liberty before. And uh, this is in Canada, where I'm from, I, sh- I should say. Mm. And uh, so I, I did that for a few years, but I was still getting, it was a very blue collar job and uh, got quite dirty. And, and a lot of times we wired all the foundries in Ontario and it was just filthy. Uh, and uh, I wanted to uh, to move into a more white collar job. And uh, I taught myself to do some programming and that balance of having the, the detailed knowledge of, uh, of telephone systems. By that point in time, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was actually a PBX engineer and um, mm-hmm programming PPXs. And so, oh, and when I say programming them, that's what we called it, but it was really provisioning. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 so that was attractive to uh, to a company called Linton Technology Group, went on to become Switchview. And uh, they were, uh, they had a very unique, uh, they were a startup. They had a, a very unique relationship with Nortel, who was at the time, you know, one of the uh, biggest providers of digital PBXs and key systems in the world, as well as central offices, a uh, Canadian company. And in fact, had, it was the leading leading company on the Canadian stock exchange for a while there too, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Very, uh, very uh, important company for Canada. Mm. Unfortunately, on now. Uh, we had a, a technology sharing agreement with them, which was very unique, and and uh, didn't and it was a contract with no expiration date, which was uh, some sort of a coup. <laughs> but uh, the company was was started to 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 really do network management systems for those PBXs and 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 specifically networks of those PBXs because your uh, if you look at you know large enterprises and government that. They, they will use their own private branch exchanges with, with their own uh, trunking between them, et cetera. And they have their own phone networks and uh, they're large and complex and they have the same sort of challenges on a smaller scale that uh, communication service providers do. And so we started out by having uh, basically a graphical user interface to a to what was a command line interface offered mm. by Nortel. Which uh, that would have been quite novel at the time. It, it was completely novel and... Uh, uh, we we uh, we did that. Uh, it was very successful. I, I I started traveling around the world, being the guy. Cause so I worked in a software company where everybody was a software developer, but none of them really understood the phone uh, yeah, network yeah. that well. And I was the guy who understood the phone network very well, yes. who who knew enough about software to be able to to have a conversation with the two groups, um, because you know back in those days, the uh, unlike today where we've got total convergence now. Right, the mm-hmm. software is eating the network, right? But back then, you had computers and you had networking equipment, and they didn't meet very much. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of spots, they bump up against each other, and I ended up uh, focusing my career around that 
you know, if you take a Venn diagram, mm -hmm. that overlapping bit, which was very, very small initially when I got started, and that has always been where my career has focused is in between there. Yeah, and so that migration to the to the coding world, was that purely based on the fact that you wanted a white-collar job or was there some other interest and other drivers that, that made you take that path too? The, I like to answer that with a true story. So when I was installing PBXs, we had uh, installed a, a PBX for a company in Cambridge. And the way that the sales guy had sold it wasn't, he didn't get the engineering support that he needed. And, and so there ended up being a problem. And the problem was that the branch office kept ending up with tromboned uh, uh, trunk lines. And so mm -hmm. basically you'd, you'd, you'd start out at the beginning of the day with a couple dozen uh, lines between the offices, and then they would, they would get hung up uh, so that by the end of the day, you were down to only a couple mm. and uh, it was a real problem. And and the solution just needed a manual intervention. So my job became uh, at the end of every day and at the beginning of every day, I'd, I'd have to uh, uh, log into the command line interface over a modem and, and tear down these trunks. Mm. And so I was supposed to be doing that at eight o'clock in the, in the morning. Uh, before everyone else arrived and it meant I had to get up an hour earlier and I didn't want to get up an hour earlier so I wanted a solution to that problem and uh, uh, a friend of mine uh, was an early adopter of, uh, of Unix and the internet and he had a uh, SCO Xenix server on a 286 which was multi-user and he had uh, some modem on it and so I was able to dial into it and use it use UCP like the precursor to the internet and so I, I, I taught myself to, to program in C um, for the express purpose of automating that job that I had to do I did that it took me probably three or four weeks to learn enough C to write a program and schedule it on the Xenix system and uh, it started running itself every morning and uh, I got to sleep in an hour. And it's changed the entire trajectory of your career based on getting an extra hour of sleep? Well, it really showed me that I was capable of creating automation and solving yeah. solving real problems. Yeah. And, and just thinking with that mindset of automation so early on when the tools weren't in uh, readily accessible as they are today, uh, just shows a, a particular mindset that's uh, somewhat different perhaps from many in the industry. But I guess that, that's also changing because everybody's looking at automation these days. And over the next few years, you got very, very heavy and I guess still really are into uh, some of the protocol stakes, so ISDN, SS7, which is a voice signaling protocol for those uh, who haven't been around decades like uh, like Pants and I have, um, signaling. And I guess in doing some of that uh, really hardcore coding, it also opened up some really unique business opportunities and business propositions for you. Can you tell us about perhaps what some of the most important ones of those were? Sure. This was at a time when uh, you liberalization was was beginning in the telecommunications industry. So we we'd already liberalized the uh, CPE market, so you could put your own devices on the network. But you, we hadn't really liberal liberalized the uh, telecommunications operators, right? So uh, we followed the United States a couple of years after them, and mm. so we liberalized the 
inter-exchange carrier market to, for long-distance phone calls. Uh, and over time, you know, like place around the world, uh, uh, they liberalized more and more. And so you had companies who were in that in-between space where the full liberalization hadn't taken place yet. So they had to re- really do novel things to be able to uh, to stay in business and and uh, or, or to find new businesses, right? And some of those companies became very successful, like um, Sprint in Canada came out of a company called CallNet, and uh, CallNet started before you could you could sell long distance phone calls. But they were able to sell long distance phone calls because what they said was, uh, and they're you know very publicly, we uh, we we offer a value add. We offer accounting services, so we, we offer call uh, accounting management for your long distance usage. But to be able to do that, we actually have to manage the calls. So the calls are a byproduct of this accounting service that we provide. And so, you know, that's the sort of um, thinking that would go into uh, uh, the precursors to, uh, to full liberalization. And so a lot of unique challenges for those entrepreneurial people. And uh, you weren't you didn't have the benefit of of having vendors and and uh, and other support infrastructure there to to support what you're trying to do because no one had thought of it yet and and so people uh, would come to me and have a unique business challenge they want to do as a service provider and uh, i would find a way to do it and that typically levered uh, leveraged uh, isdn uh, which was the, the digital trunking that that uh, was becoming available in the 90s, and uh, then on the carrier side of that, we had the the grown-up version of that is uh, what we call signaling system seven. That's how central offices and you know like in different cities or, or 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 across the network communicate with each other, and just as I had always done it, I, you know, I always wanted to find the best. And so if I was doing an ISDN and there was something better, well, then SS7, then I wanted to do SS7. And, uh, and then, um, you know, as soon as I had that, I'm demonstrating some ability to do that, then people are very interested in that. And then they will ask you about the particular problems that they have. And, and, uh, you know, I just built a business around that called Motivity Telecom, uh, which I ran for about a dozen years. And along the way, you met another serial entrepreneur, Adrian Science. So did he help inspire that entrepreneurial spirit or was it already inherent? You Had you already started up some of the companies that you talked about in that uh, in that time frame? Well, when I first met Adrian, he uh, he had a uh, one of these resellers. Uh, uh, and this was right when we had full liberalization of the long distance market in Canada. And uh, there was some amalgamation and I, I was with the uh, ITN corporation and we were merged with, um, with a, a, a reseller that he had. Uh, and he briefly became the uh, CEO at ITN and that's where I met him and uh, didn't have a, a lot of interaction because he wasn't there all that long. But a few years later, I, I was, I found myself in uh, the, the, the next new thing that everyone was doing, which was building ISPs. Uh, so uh, people were uh, buying sun servers and routers and, and, and a lot of modems and, and building internet access uh, uh, businesses. 
And uh, there was a lot of that going on and, and, uh, uh, and not a lot of people knew how to do it. And so for a few years, that became the next big thing. And I, uh, I, uh, that's when I started uh, uh, working for myself. Uh, I was just had too much opportunity with that going on, uh, which I originally was trying to do as a side job. And then I decided I'd just, you know, quit my job. And, uh, and that's when I became an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was uh, uh, how I first met Adrian. Now, when I, I, I next started working with, with him was um, a bit after a couple years later when that, when, when that uh, initial flurry of uh, ISPs was dying down, Adrian was starting a new business, which was the next thing to be liberalized, which was international telecommunications. Uh, that's um, between countries. And so it used to be that Teleglobe was the monopoly provider of international communications in Canada. Um, Adrian uh, created a company called North American Gateway, uh, which um, was uh, competing with uh, with Teleglobe. Uh, and, and again, like in, uh, in, in most of these other things, you start by finding unique ways to compete that, that are, are legal if you interpret the rules liberally. And uh, 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 Adrian had a great term. He called it leading the regulatory curve, uh -huh. and uh, you know which which we'd seen Callnet do so well. Mike Kadar was the the president there, and he had he that eventually became Sprint Canada, and and you know it's a success story. Uh, and North American Gateway became a great success story, and and he began um, working around the fringes, and and uh, eventually uh, was shut down for a little while. Um, actually uh, went to went through the Canadian uh, uh, regulator, the CRTC, the CRTC shut him down. He, he, he appealed to the cabinet, the government, and got that CRTC uh, decision reversed and was back in business. And, and, and eventually, you know, that, that whole business became liberalized. And so we built quite a, a, a big global business. Uh, we had switching centers in Toronto and London and uh, New York uh, and others, and we're aggregating routes into countries all over the world. And, it was an exciting time, but yeah. So, in answer to your question, what did I learn from Adrian? Well, I, I learned, I learned to think out of the box. I, I, mm -hmm. I learned that that rules are uh, what you make of them, and and you, you know, nothing is that uh, hard and fast. So, I've I'm, as an engineer, I'm a pretty black and white guy, and Adrian's more of a salesman, and he sees the world in a in, in a spectrum of color, and uh, I, I learned to look at things uh, a little differently from him. Uh, and one of the other important things I learned from him was that if you're going to send someone an email or have a conversation with people and you have a good thing and a bad thing to say, you start with the good thing. Don't start a conversation with the bad. Uh, and, and that's something I remember every day. And were there other mentors along the way in those early days? Oh, yeah, there were some. Um, the the founder of the Linton Technology Group was uh, Art Linden. Uh, he he had some great lessons for me, and I remember one it, we we were doing this um, uh, uh, this network management system for Nortel PBXs, and that and that company was very specifically about Nortel PBXs. Mm. We had a, a we were implementing this proprietary technology, um, their proprietary technology, um, and. Uh, and then one day, Nortel announced that they had a product that did what ours did. Mm. And so I, I was pretty sure that my job was over. And um, I, I expressed this concern to, to Art one day. And he said, no, Vance, you don't get it. 
this is the best thing that ever happened to us. You know, we've been going around trying to convince people that they need a network management system for their Nortel PBXs. And we spend most of our time convincing them that they need a product like this. We don't do that anymore. Nortel does that. Now we only need to convince them that ours is better. Yeah. And I guess you also look to integrate to the other platforms as well, not just Nortels, but uh, we, the other. We did. Yeah. Yeah. We, we branched out and we started doing Mitel and other Canadian manufacturer PBXs and uh, eventually uh, pr pretty much all of them. But, you know, the the um, the, the Nortel market was big enough that, that we had specific products like the provisioning stuff that was mm. so specific to them. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess one of the things that's really impressed me, particularly some of your stories from those early days, is that you take something of an uncommon view. So in a lot of the people that I, I come across in this industry, in the telco industry, takes the perspective of building tools for the telcos, building OSS for the operators, not necessarily looking beyond that. So it comes out quite clearly in things like, uh, like businesses like SkySurf, when you're looking to service or provide comms to commercial airlines, uh, looking at classics, when you're looking at providing services to the hospitality industry, you, you took a perspective that was driven more by business propositions and beyond just tools for telcos. Is that something that, that you really drove or that those opportunities just found their way to you? Well, it's kind of both. Uh, like the opportunities in their raw form uh, pushed to me, but then I, I would uh, I would put my my spin on things and 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 uh, uh, and form them into what I would uh, would want to see. There is something that there seems to there's a skill that people uh, don't seem to uh, uh, learn or 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 intuit very well, and 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 that's this the the ideation and the and the the creation of product uh, or service creation as as uh, as I like to call it in the communication service provider business, um, but that's really about uh, you know and when you say those words like like people will will think about uh, you know a, a mobile service plan and and you know a, a what how you price it or something, um, and that's a part of it but uh, there's how you use it, how it fits in with your life and, and uh, what problems it solves for, for you as a, as a, as a customer are, are, are really uh, critical things. And, and, and the communication about that, like, how are you communicating that value proposition? Uh, uh, what, what pain point or, or, uh, or pleasure point, if you will, that, that are you addressing? And, 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 you know, you've got to get everything lined up so that if you build it they won't come they won't know where it is right so mm -hmm. building it's a small part of it you've mm -hmm. you've got to you've got to have an effective message that jives with the value you're creating and and so that's always quite difficult uh and that fastnet for instance which was the genesis of our online charging system for for six scale uh, i created the mechanisms to be able to create the products and 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 said now what are your products and, and how, how do you want to do this? And, and the was a complete lack of imagination. And I was disappointed in that. But um, ever since then, I've, I've really found the same thing, just no matter where I go, is that the imagination of, of, of come up, coming up with, uh, with actual products and, you know, thinking about what that value proposition is, what 
what how you're communicating it to customers and what uh, what what how you're changing their lives. That's a that's a role I don't come across very often. I don't come across people really embracing that role very well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point. You use the word intuit there. So it's one thing coming up with the idea. But do you now, having been through that process a number of times, do you have a, something of a structured process for then taking those ideas, but then yeah, working through them to say, well, is it just something that I think is valuable or, or do you have ways of yeah, figuring out how to market it? Um, classifying the market, all those other things that lead to it then becoming a successful product. Yeah, I, I'm I'm guilty of, of being an engineer at my core, and so my natural tendency would be to solve a technical problem and 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 make it a perfect solution, and then mm -hmm. expect and expect to reap the rewards. Um, but it doesn't really work that way. Mm -hmm. And I've I learned the hard way that you really got to make sure there's a market for what you're doing. And, and that, and often one of the challenges I often have is that I'm usually 10 years early. So that's, that's no good, right? That's, that's just bragging, right? So you don't, you don't, you don't win in business doing that. So yeah, it's an uphill battle pushing something that the market's not ready for or not aware of or can right. see the benefits for. So, so I learned early on that, that it, as much as that's what you, that all engineers would be inclined to do mm. uh, to concentrate on the technology that you, if you're not solving a, a, a problem for people that it's, you're just wasting your time and having wasted too much of my time in the past, I, I, I really make sure that I get that done right. Mm. And so skipping few ahead a few years now, it's probably a good lead into your current vehicle, which is SigScale. So are you able to tell us a little bit about what SigScale does and the specific niches? You touched on a little bit uh, around the OCS um, and uh, what preceded it, but yeah, tell us a little more about SigScale. Well, I, I founded SigScale uh, five years ago um, uh, at a time when when NFV was uh, was the big new thing, and and uh, it just seemed like a really good match for for my career trajectory. Like with the all the things that I've built through my career, uh, it was always about that convergence. And now convergence is 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 what NFV is all about, and mm. it's it's completing the convergence. And so mm. we have pretty much 100% overlap. And uh, so that seemed like the area that I should be in and I wanted to create a startup. So, mm. um, so I, I, I chose the, uh, uh, the, the basic idea of, uh, of taking the opportunity to, to greenfield solutions for this new environment. So uh, cloud native solutions, um, a, a, a term maybe we'll touch on later that, that <laughs> meant a little bit different thing to me at that time than, than it does to most people today. But um, uh, really it was about greenfielding these things. And, and so that was the basic premise. Um, uh, and signaling always having been a focus, that was, um, that was something I really wanted to leverage um, mm. to be able to create scalable signaling systems and, and uh, thus the name SigScale. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, the other aspect of that mission for the company was to to be a true open source company, mm. uh, and uh, that 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 was an important part of what we did and a differentiator. And so we are 
uh, you know, I, I described sort of the market uh, that we were going into. And uh, um, a, an important part of what we're doing is that what we are creating is is uh, intellectual property that is not licensed. Uh, uh, well, it's licensed. It's licensed with an Apache open license, uh, mm -hmm. but it's not, we, we don't sell runtime use licensing. That's not the business model that we have. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about how the business model does work for open source for, for you, some of the the reasoning, uh, the pros and cons of, of open source in the context of SIGScale? Yeah, so the basic driver behind the, the choice for open source, the, the business driver in terms of why the founders of this company, Adrian and myself, chose that business model was, is a very practical uh, strategy for marketing. Uh, we, if, if we're a very small company with, with that, and we, we didn't want to go out and get a lot of venture capital funding, we wanted to be able to grow this thing, um, uh, you know, really demonstrate results. And so, so uh, a, a very small uh, company trying to do business with a very large company, you're very disadvantaged. It's very hard to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but when your uh, offer, your commercial offer is so radically different than, than the traditional way of doing things that it, it just provides a different vector. Mm -hmm. It's a different vector to get into that business. And, and so that was a really important uh, part of the, the business strategy. Now, um, once having done that, we, you know, I, I actually got the, uh, the book by uh, Jim Whitehurst, I think it is, the uh, CEO uh, uh, at the time of uh, Red Hat, and uh, wrote a book all about being open and uh, uh, really embraced all of that philosophy. Like, uh, uh, you know, I knew I knew what open source was, but he he really talked about uh, being open, about what are like having an open mindset, an open policy, open everything, truly open. And and uh, I really embraced that. And I said, if we're going to do this, because I am a purist, I said, if we're going to do this, we're going to really do it. And so no uh, community version, and then we keep the good stuff to ourselves. And the community there's a watered down six month old version of what you can get if you actually pay for it. None of that, right? So all of the code there's one there's one uh, branch of all the code, and and well, there's there's other branches, but there's one main branch, and that's the mm -hmm. branch that everyone would be on, whether you were going to pay for uh, support contracts or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that the idea is that see. Um, you know, Microsoft took a, a, a choice, uh, uh, like in the early 90s or the late 80s or something. Uh, uh, they could have, because uh, at the time there were lots of copyright controls, dongles, little hardware things, mm -hmm. printer port. And if you didn't have that hardware attached, the software wouldn't run. There, there were solutions to make sure that everybody paid for your software. Mm -hmm. But they chose not to do that. Uh, they decided that it would be fine if only one or two percent of the people using the software paid the full price for the software mm. um, as long as enough people were paying the full price of the software that they had a viable business and that all those other people were just creating demand to pay for the software it was a good strategy it worked they, they dominated the world with that strategy but for us uh uh I knew that that wouldn't be the way it worked. I knew that in a service provider business, uh, having commercial support was going to be a, a, a necessary thing. So that in, instead of, uh, so we flipped it. And, and so basically it turned out to be true uh, that uh, as, as near as we can tell at least, 
that that there's only one or two percent of people who would put our software into production who don't have a support contract with us. Mm. You know, it works the other way in a communication service provider business. And so the so our real product is a support subscription, which is which is service assurance. It's it's um, it's it's an insurance policy that you're you're paying to have us there to help you when things go wrong. You're paying to have us there when you you need support for for anything, product creation, mm. uh, etc. And so our business is really about service assurance. Uh, uh, for the people who adopted our technology, and that that the revenue from that service assurance business finances the further development of that uh, intellectual property. Do you have community development of that, or is that all tightly controlled within your team? At the moment, it really is us. Uh, uh, we we don't we don't get a lot of input from the community now. That's uh, not that we don't want it. Uh, it when when we get to a point where there is enough interest in doing that, you know, we'll look at uh, setting up programs and encouraging that more. But everything is open; we're entirely open. So if you if you send us a fix, you know, it based solely on merit of of uh, of what you've contributed, we'll we'll uh, we'll consider it for inclusion. And uh, but we don't get a lot of that. And one of the reasons would be that our technology is is not mainstream. So mm -hmm. it just cuts down the number of people who would understand how to work with the technology to begin with. And when I say about the technology, it's it's not mainstream in that it's communication service provider based technology, but it's but also the environments that we use. So we we do most of our work in a, uh, a, a functional programming language called Erlang. So there's just you know less people to know how to contribute code for that. And you've talked a little bit about the technology. Can you tell us a bit more about what the technology is? I know there's a few products, but there's a, a flagship product. Would you like to tell us a bit about what that does and the kind of customers it supports? Yeah, our flagship product has um, has been uh, for most of the five years uh, the online charging system, and so this enables. Uh, communication service providers to do real-time charging of prepaid services. So prepaid mobile phones is is the uh, is is really the the classic target. Uh, although uh, wireless uh, ISPs uh, have used it with radius protocol and 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 um, Wi-Fi access points, but most of our uh, our, our our target customer, most of our, our paying customers are. Uh, communication service providers who are mostly MVNOs, a lot of them in the IoT space. And uh, it's it's really all about this uh, charging. So it's a AAA function. Users, subscribers, subscribe to some kind of product which has some kind of rating. And uh, yeah, before they're able to use a service, we need to make sure that they are, uh, that they are authorized, that they have a valid subscription. Uh, and then using that subscription and the prices in, within that subscription, we decide how much uh, the service is going to be charged in advance because everything's done on a reservation basis. And then we'll um, check and see if they have balance to cover that uh, that cost. And that's that basic job. Uh, and we do that for for the uh, uh, packet gateways and uh, SGSNs and, uh, you know, um, those element network elements of the mobile phone networks mostly, but you know, as I say, also DSL uh, is uh, is another use case, and uh, Wi-Fi is another use case. And in fact, one of the things that we added uh, over the last uh, 
uh, year, uh, last two years really, but mostly in the last year was uh, carrier Wi-Fi. So we are, uh, uh, we're now uh, uh, implementing the, uh, the interface to the home subscriber server. So you can, uh, we'll perform the front end authentication uh, using the SIMs and the devices. And then we get the authentication vectors from the HSS and we manage that whole uh, carrier Wi-Fi use. So that's that's that product. And that seems to be a little bit of a transition from the original intent of going after the NFA market. No, not at all, really, because so the, the NFV was really about getting rid of appliances. So it was really about softwareization. And so we greenfielded the OCS. Um, so it's, it's, it's really right on the original mission. So okay. uh, when we, like, we created the, our online charging system five years ago uh, from scratch, and we decided to implement it with Erlang. And, uh, and we built the whole stack. So, so uh, everything... Um, well, we Erlang is a is a is a language that was developed at Ericsson, and there's a there's a runtime for it, like a virtual machine similar to a Java a Beam virtual machine. That's provided by uh, by uh, Ericsson uh, basically, and uh, uh, everything else. So we use that, which does include a diameter protocol stack, and everything else we've uh, we've implemented uh, without any uh, prerequisites like uh, you know databases and et cetera. And so the, the, you know, the greenfielding, it was the one thing. And then we made a choice at that time to use all TM forum information models and open APIs. Mm. And, you know, so it's really spot on with the NFE uh, idea of software, completely softwareizing the network elements. We, ch we chose that, uh, well, a couple in there, the 3GPP AAA function, as well as the online charging system function. Some of your early customers, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the story and how how they came about, the, the types of customers they were and, and how you made connection with them? Well, our first customer was uh, one of Adrian's uh, startups. Uh, so he has this wireless ISP in Mexico and th that company was getting a little bit stagnant. It hadn't really changed its offer. And so I, I came in and, and really identified that we needed an online charging system to, mm. to, to properly run that business, to really, to move them from a uh, postpaid billing to a prepaid billing, which would allow them to have different products because they only had one product just all you can eat internet by the month mm -hmm. and uh, you know, not even tiered, right? So just one single product. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I wanted to enable them to have uh, an hourly guest product, you know, all, all kinds of tiers and, and the way things are, are done in, uh, in a lot of places. And so I built the technology to do that. Uh, so that was that one. And one of the other early partners that we had, and we still have today is Liquid Telecom out of Africa. They have enterprise uh, voice, uh, they're a big fiber optic, the largest fiber optic network in, in Africa. So um, they've got a varied business, but part of their business was to provide enterprise voice services. And in Africa, you have some specific challenges, you know, uh, low margins is, is one of them. And credit risk is a problem. So basically, even though they've got a postpaid marketed service, and that's it's marketed in the sort of traditional way that you would do trunking into PBXs, they wanted the credit control to be the same sort of online real-time uh, that you would do for a prepaid mobile offer. And uh, so, you know, we've, we've delivered that for them. So it's an IMS uh, a voice application and, and we run it as a prepaid uh, service, do all prepaid rating and reservations and all of that. 
and then beyond that, some some other uh, partners, which I'm not at liberty to mention, are are MVNOs who who are uh, doing unique things, luggage tracking and uh, other uh, IoT uh, stuff, very specific IoT things. That sounds really interesting. So if uh, if I was speaking to somebody, what sort of phraseology would they be using that I could identify that this would be an ideal customer for SigScale? Well, uh, entrepreneurial people who aren't doing the normal thing, the the, the outliers, you know, mm. the the non-mainstream, the the people who are are identifying niche business and then really serving it well. Those are the people who I get along with, and and mm. they're the ones that have challenges that, yeah, that just there aren't ten vendors in the market with an existing solution, you know. So they they mm. they need they need something specific, and and this is one of the the great things about open source. So because there's no capex, right? Like when you you come and you decide mm. to use our online charging system to be the engine of of your revenue in your in your network, the good news is that. There's no upfront cost for that mm. because you can just get it from GitHub and start using it if you know how to build it, which mm -hmm. is a challenge, mind you. But, but you know, in in theory, there you are. But in practice, there's a gap analysis that needs to be done. So, um, does it do everything that you need? No, it does 80%, 90%, 98%, and there's a bit of a gap there. And so, they will work with us to fill that gap. And the being open source, they always have that that hedge that if we can't or don't do it for them, they could hire somebody else to do it or do it themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. You've always got that, that ability. And so those most of, are most of the opportunities are people who are really trying to leverage those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And do you tend to find them or do they find you? Uh, well, that's the beautiful part of the business. So again, I said the open source was a business strategy and it was really a marketing strategy. And so that has really worked out well for us. We're still a small company, but the the experience has been that we concentrate on building up that intellectual property and supporting the customers that we have. And then we just get queries coming in because people discover us through the through Google is the first thing. I mean, they they're they're looking for a solution, they're Googling, they're finding our 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 solution. Um, and then because it's open source, like that wouldn't work if you had a commercial product, right? Mm -hmm. But because it's open source, that's the thing that attracts people. And so we'll get people coming in. So the, in actual fact, the, the really only marketing that we do in terms of uh, monetary investment is our uh, membership fees in the TM forum and the events that we uh, that we go to, that we participate in. And, and those are the things that attract that get our name out there. People uh, learn about what it is and what we do. And, and then uh, when, when opportunities, uh, uh, well, when challenges come along that they need to solve and they, they, they remember who we are and what sort of things that we do and uh, then they come to us. Hmm. So it's a good segue into TM Forum. Uh, you're, I've noticed that you're really active in, participant in the TM Forum. Is that in an official role? No, I'm a SigScale is a member of the TM forum. So we, we, you know, we pay our membership dues and I participate personally in, in several of the work streams. So the open API project and the open digital architecture project, and uh, it's a community uh, uh, led organization. And uh, so I am a team member, um, but, you know, I have uh, last year, I, I, I was given a, an outstanding contributor award. So, uh, a bit of recognition for my my role, but certainly nothing official. No, 
Yeah, and definitely warranted because you do, I can see that you put a lot of time into, I guess particularly what, what really stands out to me is that you appear to focus on turning some of the theories into practice. So things like the catalyst programs you seem to be deeply involved with. What are the other, what are some of the main initiatives that you're driving at the moment through TM Forum? Well, I, I over the last few years, I've uh, become the resource domain guy in a time when when everyone else is very focused on network as a service. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea there is to just ignore the resource domain. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, right? Because mm. what they what they want to do is they want to be able to not have to manage the full stack mm. to be able to abstract it at the product layer so that you're just working with services and that resource layer is interchangeable. It doesn't mm. change the, the services. And so that that is that's all very sound, but uh, the resource layer still needs to be managed mm. and not by those people, by, by, by another department, you know, but uh, it still needs to be done. And so there's less interest in it. And uh, this is a sort of thing about my career. I, I do the not the popular stuff so everybody's uh, working on network as a service and i'm i'm kind of doing it the old school way but but that you know the resource domain uh, as you're well aware needs to be managed needs to be managed effectively to be able to have um, those services work the way that they're supposed to so i do that um and i uh uh, have furthered work that was done by, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. I've furthered some of the work that was started a couple of years ago and on, on resource functions and managing software as a resource. So as we're going through this NFV process and, you know, now cloud native functions, all the softwareization is going on, your those those things still are resources, but now it's not a um, it's a virtual resource, right? Mm-hmm. But it has all the same information model as as the old appliance version, right? Um, so we need to manage those, but we need to now take into account the environments, uh, the the unique way that those things uh, are supported in those environments. And so I've done a lot of uh, concentration on that. And the, uh, I mean, there's a big change going on. Uh, so in the past, we had a very hierarchical OSS stack uh, in, in the network, like 3GPP networks. So you would have element management systems and that would come from a vendor. And so a vendor would provide you, a, a say, a 3G RAN or you know a 5G uh, core, whatever it is. And, and they'll provide an, a management system for that equipment that they sold you. And so you don't talk directly to those elements. You go through the network management system. And then you, you would have uh, element managers and domain managers, and then you would have a, an umbrella system being the, the real network management system. Well, with 5G, with the whole softwareization, with all that's going on with uh, uh, moving to virtual networks, we're flattening that whole thing out. So there's a new service-based management architecture in 3GPP, and we don't deal with those very macro levels anymore. Now we have management network services, and each of those services are much more, they're like microservices. So uh, fault management or performance management would be some, um, or configuration management, those would be uh, microservice, uh, well, they're management network services uh, with actually component uh, uh, services. And you are, uh, you can have a function which either produces and or consumes those services and who those those consumers are you can you can actually uh, be be creating 
in a bit of an ad hoc way. So it's not statically defined like it used to be. So uh, the Etsy ZSM project uh, today uh, is really concentrating on that aspect of it. And when you start to think about uh, closed loop control and autonomous networks, you can start to see how and why these management functions need to be lifecycle management. So a 5G slice is put into service. Well, you're going to need a management service that manages that 5G slice. So it, mm. it needs to be spun up and and uh, lifecycle managed, uh, et cetera. And it needs to talk to the to the network service, the management network services that it needs to support that. I guess it must feel like almost back to the days of deregulation that things are opening up the the opportunities for innovation in and around this space uh, must be really exciting. Yes, absolutely, uh, and. The, the big the big difference is that we are moving from having three or four big global vendors mm. to the CSPs and having a really an unlimited uh, number of vendors, more vendors than you're ever going to be able to be aware of potentially. And uh, as long as we have, or as long as we're building an infrastructure and an ecosystem that is open, uh, we can achieve that. Yeah, opening up that long tail of innovation, I think it's brilliant seeing what things are happening in the space. And speaking of which, we talked a little bit about you being at the centre of a Venn diagram between software and networks earlier on. I also feel like you're a key connector. You've got that real Venn diagram between uh, the work that you do with 3GPP uh, and the TM Forum. And I feel like, again, that's a fairly small intersect that you're providing real value in. Sure. Well, I, I don't have an official role at the at the 3GPP either. In fact, I'm transparent to, the, to that group, but I've been consuming the mm. specifications that they produce for decades, uh, you know, implementing all those protocols that really was taking the specifications that that standardization, uh, standards development organization has produced and, and understanding them and implementing them uh, into software. And so, you know, it's it's something I'm I'm, I'm very uh, uh, used to working with, and then in the TM forum, uh, you know, again, I circumstances sort of put me on this resource management uh, uh, role, and so managing the 3GPP domain was very important to me, and the the vendors haven't done the you know those three or four big vendors haven't done a very good job of of really making an open um, management network. Uh, they haven't had any commercial interest in doing so, which mm. is partly selfishly, they don't want it. They, they don't want to interconnect with other vendors. You know, that's a that's a selfish business decision on their part. But then the, the, the operators uh, have to share in the blame too, because they mm. didn't make them. You know, they didn't, they didn't pay them to do that. They didn't force them to do that. So, you know, they didn't require that, that the solution had to have that open management. So, and they bought it anyway, you know, so they're both to blame, but we, even though 3GPP did a pretty good job of specifying open interfaces that they didn't actually get implemented. Mm. Um, but like I said, that can't continue if we're going to build autonomous networks and all these mm. other things, right? So in a in a 5G core network, which is completely software, we, we can't do that old way. We have to have these open uh, uh, management interfaces. So in the TM forum, again, you know, n not that many people interested in the resource domain. Most of the, mm. the 
the interest is uh, is towards the top of the stack. So I took it upon myself to to uh, to try and solve some of the problems that I saw. Um, so I was uh, the the primary author for uh, a document that we produced called IG twelve seventeen, which which lays out how to do the information model mapping from 3GPP network resource models into the TM forum information model called the SID and uh, and to be able to map the, from one to the other. And then once you've made that map, you carry it on to the, uh, to the TM forum open APIs. Mm -hmm. And so we've actually implemented the software that does that. So I've really connected all the dots there. So we, we can take the uh, information that is exported from the management systems from the vendors, you know, Nokia and Huawei and Ericsson, et cetera. And they, to varying degrees, support bulk configuration management and exporting this description of the uh, of what is in the network, the network inventory, and um, so we have mapped that from from the proprietary version to the 3GPP um, standardization mm -hmm. version. And then once we've all normalized all the vendors into the 3GPP version, then we have a mapping from that to the TM forum information model. And then that becomes very easy to map it to the TM forum open APIs. And so then we implemented the software that does all of that as an open source uh, resource inventory management system. So that I, so IG1217 is just a document that describes that process and how to make that work. So it's it's been quite well received. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's taken it from not just the paper study, but actually putting it into practice. And in putting it into practice, I'm sure you identified a whole bunch of uh, things that you may not necessarily have discovered just in a paper study. So uh, mappings and things like that. Yes. Well, absolutely. Especially with the, with the, you know, doing the vendor mappings and, and that sort of thing. And you, and you, you find out that in theory, we've got a model for all the information, but in practice, how much of that information was captured. And mm. so now you've got to create solutions for discovery. And uh, so yep. that's in the, in, in terms of product um, beyond the open source software that we've created, that's, that's kind of the value add that we've been able to do is mm. having, having the DevOps stuff that uh, allows that to happen. Yeah. And so to add an extra ring to the Venn diagram, you now also started up an initiative with uh, the Linux Foundation Networking Group. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I joined an initiative. So the uh, XG Vela project uh, uh, was an, an incubator project with LFN and has re recently been uh, been approved. And it's a uh, it's a project to provide a platform as a service for 5G network functions. It's XG, so uh, um, you know we didn't want the name to uh, limit us to one generation, but um, but really yeah, because 5G is already so passe. You're already onto six and seven G, no doubt. Well, so we had the foresight anyway, uh, <laughs> but but you know five five G is it, it requires a software implementation it's it, it you yes. have to do things um this way and basically cloud native so xg Vela is you know you can presume kubernetes and uh, uh so you're you really have containerized uh, network functions and lots of people uh have the um uh, the ability to develop those things but that 
decades of history that goes into telco management mm -hmm. it takes a lot to learn and and there's just so much of it that what we're trying to do is 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 allow to software developers application developers to get a lot of that stuff for free so as long as you follow the templates and follow the recipe to work within the the pass framework that you've been provided then you're going to automatically have a well-managed network function. So one of the things that I'm looking to do is to bring in the TM forum API so that that if you deploy a network function using XGBella, that it you won't have to implement any and you only have to implement your information model and make sure that it, you're using the facilities for configuration management that we provide. And then all of that inventory and uh, so the configuration management, the performance management, the fall management, you get for free because it's uh, you followed the information models and we've mapped it to the uh, to the appropriate APIs and it winds up in the TM forum OSS BSS world or it uh, mostly OSS uh, or uh, and or uh, th through ONA. Uh, those are the sort of two vectors for for most of that support. Yeah, and it's a really, really important cross-pollination function that you're doing there too, because there is so much parallelism, but not complete overlaps as well between those groups and tend to see that there's not that many people who act as cross-pollinators like yourself. So I feel like it's a really important role you're doing. Thank you. I do. Luckily, I enjoy it. What are some of the, the big challenges that you see that are still yet to be solved by our industry and, and perhaps TM Forum's role or any of the standards bodies' uh, role in uh, helping to solve some of those big challenges we still face? Well, I'd like to answer uh, that question on two fronts and, and one on from like the SDO side of the world. So the, it's really about playing nice with others, right? It comes down to it, you know, like... Uh, everything you need to know you learned in kindergarten. Uh, you know, it's very easy to create solutions uh, in a vacuum, but we really can't do this anymore. We, we need to be working to a common uh, model of the world. And so I, I concentrate on information modeling. And it's, it's, not a, it's an area that's not that well understood. The difference between an information model and a data model, an API, like a JSON API is an instance of a data model. You've got a specific way to encode that information. But the information model captures what you need to know about things and how those things are related. And as long as we have that information model coherent, so that the Etsy information models and the 3GPP information models and the, um, the ONF information models cohere, then, then we have the opportunity to manage end-to-end -end services and end-to-end -end networks. Uh, and that is admittedly a big problem. Like it's a, it's a hard problem. It's a challenge. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons why it, it, it isn't, doesn't, tend to exist uh, very, very well today. Just, you know, certain areas get the get thing, but it's a very big uh, uh, area. So I, I would like to see um, uh, more get done there. But the second thing that I would like to answer for question is about the business. So the, the communication service provider business, you know, it's a very old business, uh, very, not as old as hospitality, but you know, <laughs> been around for a hundred years anyway, and uh, has a lot of legacy. And we need to not change just the technology, but we need to change the business and we won't get the technology changes. You know, like I mentioned earlier, the, the management frameworks didn't get well implemented and didn't become open because the business in the business environment didn't ensure that they do. 
right? So we need to make sure that vendors and, and uh, communication service providers are all working together to foster a healthy ecosystem so that we can make these solutions work and work properly. It, you know, it all comes down to economics at the end of the day. If SigScale doesn't have the revenue, uh, then it goes away and, and any of the dreams that we had don't come about to help out the industry. So we've really got to concentrate on, uh, on having a healthy ecosystem. The RFP process and the old way of doing business mm-hmm. um, that SigScale rallies against, and, and we've railed against it because it was sort of an opportunity for us to, a business opportunity, a way to compete. But we need we, we need more demand from the operators and the more offers from the vendors for open source solutions and new ways of doing business. Software mm-hmm. as a service is, is a new model of, of how you engage, but we need to go uh, beyond that to have uh, truly open solutions. Yeah, and I guess even further upstream, so you talked about the revenues for SigScale and if they don't exist, then SigScale goes away. But further upstream of that, obviously the the CSPs also need to be profitable. So I guess it's incumbent on all of us to to help them become more profitable. When they're more profitable, more projects flow, flow our way and we get to do more exciting things and change the world like SigScale is. Yeah, well, absolutely, and I guess part of the part of the problem is with the consumers as well. Um, if uh, if everybody wants free uh, internet, you just can't have that, right? I mean, mm. y- you can have free internet because I'm paying for it, but mm. we all can't have free internet. It doesn't work that way. You know, that's mm. not how economics work. So we we have to have a a, a viable business at, at all levels. Yeah. So what does the future hold for OSS and Telco and, and how are you positioning for it? You've talked about some of those ideas, but yeah, would you elaborate further? Right. Well, the main thing is what I talked about earlier about the breakdown of the hierarchy. And and mm-hmm. so when we had a, a, a small number of elements performing network management and coming from a very small number of vendors and the new the new networks don't support that, we, we can't build autonomous networks and closed loop control and all of the uh, analytics and machine learning and all the things that all the buzzwords that people really want to see that really have to happen. Because if if you have to manually provision things, then you can't have very dynamic things. And mm-hmm. and we want things to be dynamic. I mean, we, we want automated vehicles discovering uh, the, the networks as we drive and, and uh, mobile edge services all of those things have to be highly dynamic. And, and so you have to support a lot of software and software that comes and goes and has life cycles that all needs to be managed and orchestrated. So mm-hmm. the, the old way of doing things doesn't work anymore. We, it will hold us back if we don't fix it. So the people in, at the SDOs and the, op- the operators of the CTO offices of the operators all understand this, but that's where we need to get to. We need to have an open framework for OSS and uh, so it has to be open and it has to support this dynamic lifecycle management. And to be able to support the ecosystem, like you can't rely on, on Nokia and Ericsson to build all those mm. solutions, right? So clearly you, you will have, you know, small companies like my own coming along and offering a best of breed function, mm. just one function, right? And to get the value of that function, it has to work 
nicely with the rest of the functions and the management functions in the network, right? So we have to have that and it will happen and, and it is happening. And, and that's, you know, that's where things are going. Yeah. And I feel like that coherence is a really important part of the message. And I look at it from the perspective of we've got so many really talented people out there developing solutions and historically there's been a lot of rework. So um, if you look at the inventory space, it's the same problem being solved by 20, 30, 40 different vendors and therefore the, the talent pool is continually solving the same uh, problems in different places and in slightly different ways. So you're finding that coherence of uh, just one uh, resolution to it and everybody else building on it and bolting it into to the other pieces of the puzzle, I think are really important there as well. So knowing you too, Vance, I know that you hold a few contrarian views uh, on things. We, we've talked about some of them. You talk about being the, the one percenter. Are there any other beliefs that you hold that are contrarian views that uh, compared with the rest of the industry? Yeah, my contrarian views will will just go against popularity and not not uh, good thinking. Uh, so, uh, for instance, uh, I think kind of the, the 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 story that I tell that people don't accept is that that the business that AWS and Azure and uh, and Google Cloud uh, have today is. Uh, is is like the uh, the the internet when it started with companies like UUNet and those uh, those guys who they were businesses that did the internet. That's all they did. They didn't have voice services and and et cetera. They they did IP networking and that's what they did. But they're all gone today. They've all been consumed by the traditional telcos and the traditional telcos are where you go to get your internet service. Um, there, there are no I just do internet companies anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's obviously just clearly what will happen in the long term with cloud uh, services. So you know, infrastructure as a service. I I, I need to host a web server. I I need a, uh, an environment to put it, and I'm going to have some IP addresses. I'm going to steer my DNS towards it, right? So that that's a commodity thing, and to that particular uh, thing has been uh, more commoditized. It's more people will offer that, but all of that business will become very commoditized and, and naturally the people that you're going to go to for those services are the same communication service providers that you get your uh, cell phone access from and your voice access for your office, et cetera. Um, so I, I see a natural progression. Like this move now towards mobile edge computing, people accept that we need data centers closer to the users if we want to do low latency uh, augmented reality and gaming and stuff like that. So people accept that the telcos are going to have data centers and they're going to be used to host these applications, but they don't draw the obvious conclusion that they will do that in a very general sense of people seem to think for somehow they rationalize the idea that you're only going to have those kind of things and that Amazon will continue to be, to have the, the, the vast majority of that uh, application hosting business around the world. And, you know, they, they don't, they're not here in the Philippines where I am today. So, you know, to, to use AWS, I have to go out of the country, right? The, those, that's an unnatural business system. So, so my view is very simple on that. So that it's it's all the cloud is coming down. It's becoming fog, and it will be 
all around us and the important players for the bulk of the business for what we look at today as cloud service will will be your traditional uh, telco operators. And you know, Google, Microsoft, um, AWS will continue to do things like the machine learning and, and big data and you know all kinds of value add, but for the commodity cloud services, the, the, the bulk of that will, will go down into the telcos. Do you think they can do it at the economy of scale that the, the hyperscalers can do that? Well, they, they have no choice, right? So remember, the, the whole network has become software, mm. right? So so all the appliances are, are replaced, and, and what they have in terms of infrastructure, they have radios, and, and as you know, the radios are at the top of the tower now, right? The radios mm. and the antenna are, mm. are co-located, right? So, so from yeah, They've there, got the real estate, yeah. Well, they have to have the real estate, but... The, the point being that the only real hardware that they have that aren't computers are the radios and the antennas at the top of the mast. Mm. And everything else is servers. And everything that they're doing, everything you hear about with Open RAN and, and uh, 5G Core and just Mobile Edge, all of this stuff is just software on commodity servers, mm. or at least commodity architecture servers. And so they have no choice but to build out this capability to run a, a, a lot of software, to have the iron to run the software. Because, you, you, you know, you can't take the signal from the tower and ship it to, to Singapore, mm. right? Mm. <laughs> that doesn't work. The physics don't allow that, right? Mm. So, no, they, they have to build data centers. And, and so, you know, at the base of the tower, they've got a small data center. At the aggregation point, they've got another data center. Downtown, they've got another data center. And if they have to build all of that for their own telco-specific applications, it would be a waste to not take the investment in, in, in hardware and, and all the infrastructure that goes with it and not commoditize it towards your customers. Mm -hmm. and, and for the idea that you were just going to, all those customers are going to bypass all of that and go in and use commodity servers in Singapore through AWS mm. is not natural. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Uh, one of the things I found, uh, so with a couple of the carriers that I guess I worked with, there was almost an element of resignation that they, they couldn't even come close to doing a price point that the hyperscalers were doing. So we're talking factors of 10 uh, before they could even get close to, to breaking even. So underpinning that perhaps is the fact that they couldn't automate and do things at scale like the hyperscalers can at the moment. Yeah, well, I, I haven't said when all this is going to happen. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I, I can see the future clearly. I just don't know what the timeline is. So, uh, you know, those are all challenges today. Is mm -hmm. It's very hard to get a CFO to free up money to build data centers for mobile edge and, mm -hmm. because there's no business for it. Yeah. But we're obviously going there. So th this is what I said. You asked for a contrarian view. Mm -hmm. That is not a, that's not a view that most people will, will, um, will buy into. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess we're getting towards the end of, uh, of the podcast here. Uh, any other pearls of wisdom you'd like to share with uh, with anyone else starting out or even partway through their journey? I have one really good piece of advice for anybody creating a startup in the telco space, uh, whether it be OSS or, or anything else. If telcos are going to be your customer, it's probably true of a lot of different businesses, but certainly true of the telcos. Don't be fooled by the story that you're going to do this uh, work for them 
to solve their problem and you're going to do it at a, a, as a lost leader because you're going to be able to sell that solution to all the other operators. Mm. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Make sure that your first business is profitable. Every, every bit of business that you do because that won't end up being true. Brilliant advice. So Vance, where can people find you? Well, I, I seem to be the only Vance Shipley on the planet. <laughs> that would be true. But professionally, the best way to find me is through LinkedIn. Okay. All right. So I really appreciated the insights that you've provided today, Vance, and the, just blown away by some of the, the track record of all the things you've done over the years. And I yeah, really look forward to uh, working with you in the future. And thank you very much for being a guest. Absolutely. Uh, good luck with the podcast and uh, always enjoy uh, talking and interacting with you. Thanks, Vance. And thank you also for the audience for listening in. Thanks for listening to the Passionate About OSS podcast. You can find more episodes, more than 2,500 blogs, and our contact details over at passionateaboutoss.com.